is Numbers 30. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she has bound herself and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her father opposes her on the day he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. She marries a husband while under her vows, or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand, and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day that her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, then he makes her vow, makes void her vow that was on her, and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her, any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. And if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by a pledge with an oath, and her husband heard of it and said nothing to her and did not oppose her, then all her vows shall stand and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears them, now whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning her pledge of herself shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will forgive her. Any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish or her husband may make void. But if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, then he establishes all her vows or all her pledges that are upon her. He has established them because he said nothing to her on the day that he heard of them. But if he makes them null and void after he has heard of them, then he shall bear her iniquity. These are the statutes that the Lord commanded Moses about a man and his wife and about a father and his daughter while she's in her youth within her father's house. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, on a scale of one to ten, how faithful are you in carrying out your promises? If someone had to be put a value on your word, what would it be worth? Are we people of integrity? Do we do what we said we would do? Or do we allow circumstances to change our commitment? Children, if you as friends make promises to each other, are you required to keep them? Is a promise really a promise if you crossed your fingers when you said it? And what if you said, cross my heart, hope to die? 
Are you then bound to keep your promise no matter what? What about the promises that we make to God? Our text this morning gives instruction about vows and oaths that people made to the Lord. Verse 2 says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears to bind, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. Making a vow was a voluntary act. Most often, people made a vow as a promise of what they would do for God if he blessed them in a certain way. Certain vows were simply made to thank God for his goodness and care. But the point of our text is simple. If you made a solemn promise to God, or you pledged to do something or give something, you were obligated to keep your promises Much of our text deals with some special circumstances where a person's vow might compromise something important in marriage or in family life. It details how a father was allowed to oppose the vow of a young daughter living in his house, or of how a husband was allowed to oppose the vow of his wife. We'll consider why the Lord made certain certain exceptions where he would not require a vow to be fulfilled. More generally, we'll consider what this passage teaches us about our God. How he is faithful and true always. A God who always keeps his promises. We'll see how God has made gracious provision for us. For all the times we've failed to live up to our word. We'll see our calling to be his image bearers. To live our lives to his glory, and for the well-being of our neighbor. This morning I preach to you God's word under the following theme. As our faithful God, the Lord teaches us to keep our promises. We'll consider why our vows are binding, how some vows could be undone, and what this passage teaches us. There were different kinds of vows or promissory oaths that people could make in the Old Testament. A person could make a vow to dedicate something or someone to God at the temple or to offer sacrifices if the Lord answered his or her prayers. For example, when Hannah was struggling with being childless, she asked God to grant her a son and promised that if he did so, she would devote him to God's service. Similarly, Jephthah, one of Israel's judges, made a vow to the Lord that if he made him victorious in battle against the Ammonites, he would devote as a burnt offering to the Lord whatever came out to the doors of his house when he returned home. Leviticus 27 is a chapter devoted to various laws about vows. We did not read it together, but it explains how the Israelites were to fulfill special vows made to the Lord. If someone vowed to dedicate himself or a member of his family to the Lord, they could be redeemed. The reason was that the Lord had appointed the Levites to serve at his sanctuary and that others were not required for this work. Thus, if people were devoted to the Lord, they were to be redeemed at a set cost. And the redemption money would go to the support of the Levites. 
If someone vowed a clean animal, it could not be redeemed. It had to be offered as a burnt offering. If someone vowed an unclean animal, it could not be offered. It had to be redeemed. Leviticus 27 also provided laws about dedicating a house or dedicating land to God. God's people could also make promissory oaths, committing to do something or to give something up, usually for a set period of time. An example of this is the Nazarite vow, where a person committed not to cut his hair or drink alcohol or touch a dead body for a particular period of time. In the same way, a person could make a vow of abstinence, promising to fast or to refrain from sex for a set time period. Such vows were normally made as an expression of repentance or of devotion to the Lord. People could, offer, could also offer vows of praise to God. Usually this involved delivering a personal and a public testimony of what the Lord had done for them, along with thank offerings at the tabernacle or temple. The Bible contains many examples of God's people making promises to the Lord. When Jacob fled from his brother Esau, the Lord appeared to him in a dream at Bethel. He reaffirmed his promises to Jacob to make him into a great nation and to allow his offspring to possess the land of Canaan. Jacob vowed that if the Lord cared for him and brought him back to his father's house, he would commit his life to God and he would give him a tenth of all that he had. In Psalm 66, we see how the Lord heard his people's cries to rescue them at a time when they were sorely oppressed by their enemies. When God brought them through that ordeal, the psalmist says, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fatted animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. What our text teaches is that if you made a vow to God, you are obligated to keep it. Verse 2 of our text says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. Deuteronomy 23 stresses that we are under no obligation to make vows to God, but that if we do make them, we should not delay in fulfilling our vows. It says if we don't, we're guilty of sin. The principles about vows taught in the law come back in Israel's wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes 5 verses 4 and 5 says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Beloved, do you know why the Lord took the making of vows and of promissory oaths so seriously? And why he expects us to keep them even if they cause us pain? Well, it's because of who the Lord our God himself is. God is a faithful God. He is true to his word. 
He always keeps his promises. God wants us to image him. Our God is a God of truth, and he only deals with his people in truthful ways. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? In contrast to God, we have Satan. All lying and deceit come from him. John 8, 44 says that Satan does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Here we see why we are to speak the truth. Why we are to keep our word. We see why God takes us so seriously when we make an oath or a vow. God wants us as his people to image him and not Satan. It is glorifying to God when we keep our promises. For in doing so, we show that we are like our Father in heaven. This is also of great benefit to our neighbor. For if we keep our commitments... People learn that they can trust us, that they can depend on us. So what happens when people make rash oaths or foolish vows? Well, God still expected them to live up to their commitments. Think, for example, of the covenant that Joshua made with the Gibeonites in Joshua 9. They pretended to be a people from far away. And they asked the Israelites to make a treaty with them. Joshua and the elders of Israel agreed, swearing an oath to make peace and let them live. When Israel discovered that the Gibeonites were living in Canaan, they made them servants, but they were not allowed to conquer and destroy them because of their oath. In a later time, King Saul tried to wipe out the Gibeonites. The Lord brought famine on Israel because of the guilt he incurred by this action. Although many generations had passed, Israel had sworn an oath promising to let these people live. By waging war against the Gibeonites, Saul was breaking the oath Israel had made. The Lord saw this, and he brought punishment on Israel because of it. Are there ever vows made that should not be kept? Yes, if we unwittingly make vows to do something contrary to God's word and will, then we should not go through with such promises. Think of Jephthah's vow to devote as a burnt offering to the Lord whatever came out of the doors of his house when he returned home. Commentators differ on precisely what happened to Jephthah's daughter. Some say that Jephthah devoted her to God's service, that as such she was never allowed to marry. Others suggest that he sacrificed her on the altar as a literal sacrifice to God. We're not sure what happened, but it would have been wrong to sacrifice her, for God forbade this. Another such example can be found in Mark 6, which tells us about how Herod murdered John the Baptist. On Herod's birthday, he held a great banquet for his nobles and military commanders, and the leading men of Judah. Herodias' daughter came in and danced for them, and she pleased Herod so much that he promised her 
Ask for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. He vowed, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She consulted with her mother, and she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Though he was exceedingly sorry, Herod gave in to this request because of his oaths and his guests. But he was wrong to do this, for he was murdering an innocent man. Yet, beloved, the general principle remains. If we make promises to God, then God expects us to keep them. God is a faithful God, and he wants us to reflect him in how we live our lives. As children of our Heavenly Father, we're called to be perfect just as he is perfect. You see, beloved, we are the means by which the unbelieving world around us gathers much of its information about God. How are your friends and neighbors supposed to know who God is and what he is like? Well, they could read the Bible, but most of them won't. What they will do is read you and draw conclusions from your character about the character of the God that you serve. And that's exactly as it's supposed to be. We are to be salt and light for the world. We are to reflect the Lord's character by doing what we've promised, no matter what the cost. When we fail to keep our promises, we not not only undermine people's confidence in our own faithfulness, but also in the faithfulness of our God. That's why it's so important for our yes to be yes and our no, no, as Jesus taught in Matthew 5, verse 37. People should be able to count on us to fulfill whatever we've committed ourselves to do. This brings us to our second point, and we'll consider how some vows could be undone. Much of our text is devoted to some special circumstances where vows could be voided. Our text lists four specific cases. If a young woman made a vow while residing in her father's house and her father heard of it and said nothing to her, the vow was binding. Yet her father had the right to veto her vow by opposing it on the day that he first heard of it. If a woman made a vow while single and was then subsequently married, her husband had the right to veto her vow on the first day that he heard of it. Even though her father had not objected when the vow was originally made, her husband had the right to object and so make that vow void. If a married woman made a vow, her vow too was subject to review by her husband. If he did not object on the first day that he heard of her vow, then she was obligated to keep it. If he failed to object initially, but later prevented her from keeping her vow, then he would personally bear punishment for her broken oath. The final case concerns a vow made by a widow or a divorced woman. Even if a widow or divorced woman moved back in with her family, her vows were binding. She was obligated to keep her promises. So what are we to make of these regulations? Many today would consider them sexist. 
Why was there a difference in the way young women and married women were treated when they made vows to God? In answering this question, we need to clear up some misconceptions. Women's vows are not less binding than men's vows because the Bible views women as being inferior to men. Women share in the same human nature as men do. Both have been created in the image of God. They are equal in their standing before God. Believing men and women are co-heirs of everlasting life. And God has given men and women different roles, particularly in family and in church life. What our text shows is that young daughters were under the headship of their fathers, and married women were under the headship of their husbands. Fathers and husbands have the responsibility to lead their families in the service of God. Their daughters and wives were allowed to make vows to God, and their vows were binding as long as the father or husband did not object. But they were allowed to object if they thought the vow was rashly made or if they viewed it as detrimental for family life. Elkanah could have objected to Hannah's vow that if the Lord gave her a son, she would dedicate him to God. Her vow would have had a major impact not just on her life, but also on his. Giving up your firstborn son was a big deal in Israel. He was the one who normally followed in his father's trade and who took over responsibility for the family when he got old and when he died. An Israelite father might oppose his daughter's vow to devote herself to the Lord, never marrying, if he thought that this was a youthful and an ill-considered vow. A husband might oppose his vows, his wife's vow to abstain for, from sex for a set period of time, if he deemed it too long and detrimental to their marriage. The case of the widow or the divorced woman in Israel makes the point clear. In Israel, any widow or divorced woman was the head of her own household, even if she moved in with the family at home. She was deemed responsible for her own life. That's why the vows of women who are widowed or divorced were binding. What our text teaches is that the Lord did not want the principle of headship to be undermined, even in the name of serving God. Claiming to dedicate something to God can never be an excuse for evading the responsibilities that God himself has placed on us. Marriage has been ordained by God, and children are a rich blessing from his hand. The family is the building block for any healthy society. Dedication to God's service must mean devotion to the structures that he has put in place. This includes male headship in the home. While the laws allowing a father or husband to oppose a vow made by his daughter and wife may seem strange to us, we see the carryovers of these laws even in legislation today. We have laws that require parental approval for those who are under the age of consent. Those who are under 18 years of age need parental consent before they're allowed to marry. By law, 
Healthcare professionals need parental consent to provide medical treatment for minors. Young people under the age of 16 may require a parentally signed consent form to legally work. Most often, if you want to buy a house, the bank will require both husband and wife to co-sign for the mortgage. God has given responsibility for men to lead their families in his service. Husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. They are to instruct their children in the ways of the Lord. It's their responsibility to ensure that their family is devoted in God's service. Men cannot do this well without the support and the encouragement of their wives. God created Eve as a helper for Adam to complement him, to support him in his responsibilities. A good marriage is a partnership where husband and wife help each other in God's service, where together they raise their children in the fear of God's name. But the point that our text makes is that the final responsibility for a family's leadership and devotion to God rests with the husband and father. It brings us to our final point, and we'll consider what this passage teaches us. Does our text message about making and keeping vows relate in any way to our lives today? It is striking that while the Old Testament is filled with commands about making vows and examples of people doing so, in the New Testament, vows are rarely mentioned. As Christians living in the age of the Spirit, we've learned much from our forefathers. I think we've learned from the history of God's people to be careful about making rash vows. Yet most of us do make solemn promises before God on some of the special occasions that we experience in life. We make a solemn vow before the Lord and His people when we publicly profess our faith. We promise to love the Lord God, to serve Him according to His word, to forsake the world and to crucify our old nature. Are we living up to that, beloved? If we examine our lifestyle, are there things that we regularly involve ourselves in that would cause us shame if they were made known to all those sitting here? How can we, on the one hand, promise to commit our whole life to God's service, and on the other hand, regularly partake in sin? You think you can just get away with it? That God doesn't care that you are breaking your vows? That he'll let you off scot-free? Please remember the Bible's teaching. We reap what we sow. For those among us who are married, are we honoring our marriage vows? It's so easy to think that if things are not working out, perhaps the best way forward is to get separated or divorced. There are times when a period of separation is well advised to give opportunity to work on issues. But when considering the future of our marriage, do we remember the vows that we have made? 
to be true to our husband or wife in good days and bad, in health and sickness, in riches and poverty, for as long as we both shall live? Do we just give up because the going is tough? Don't we trust God's promise that we will always receive his aid and protection even when we least expect it? Be faithful, beloved. Honor your vows. Communicate and work on your differences. God will help you. He will enable you to live together in love and unity as long as you are prepared to submit to the direction of his word and spirit. As parents, we also need to keep the vows made at the baptism of our children. We promise to instruct our children in the doctrine of the word of God and to have them instructed therein to the utmost of our power. Our parental task involves nurturing our children in God's ways and disciplining them to teach them to walk with God. Do we have good routines set up in our homes so that the word of God is open daily and we read and speak about God and all his wondrous works? Do we train our children to walk with the Lord? Do we hold our teenagers and our young adults accountable even if it may cause conflict when they're unwilling to submit? At times it's so easy to let things ride not to make an issue of something that's wrong. It's easier to give in than to maintain what is right. Communication easily breaks down. We can so easily become absentee parents, too busy in our own lives to honor our vows. But we've made promises God calls us to nurture and discipline our children so that they may learn to know him and love him and serve him. For parents, what greater joy or reward is there in life than seeing your children and your grandchildren walking with God? Can you see the need to be diligent in keeping the promises that we have made? Beloved, Despite our best intent, we often fail to live up to our promises. And that can make us feel really guilty, terribly ashamed. Started already in the Garden of Eden. Striking to see that when the serpent tempted Eve, Adam was with her. As head over his wife, Adam had the opportunity to veto his wife's sinful choice. But he remained silent. And the result was that all of mankind was plunged into sin. We deal with the consequences of that in our daily lives. For like Eve and Adam, we often do not reflect the faithfulness and truth of God in our daily lives. Yet, beloved, we have a Redeemer in our Lord Jesus Christ. When speaking about the headship of a husband over his wife, Paul teaches in Ephesians 5 that the marriage relationship is to be modeled on Christ's relationship 
as bridegroom with the church, his bride. Numbers 30 taught us how a husband was only responsible for the penalty of his wife's broken vow if he prevented her from fulfilling a vow to which he earlier did not object. Jesus Christ has done much more than that for us. Christ loved his church. He gave himself up for her. He has borne God's curse for all our failures, even though he never approved of our wandering desires and sins. In doing so, Jesus Christ has restored us to righteousness and to life so that we could serve him truly by imaging him in our daily lives. Out of thankfulness to God for Christ's redeeming work, let us offer up our lives as a sacrifice of praise to his holy name. Let us be careful about the promises that we make to God or to each other, not uttering rash commitments. If we make promises... Let us keep them. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. That may require struggle and pain. It's often difficult to live up to the commitments that we've made. Yet by doing so, we honor God and we image his love and his faithfulness to others. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing together from Psalm 116, stanzas 7, 8, and 9. 